Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to hear your voice. Lord, may your word be spoken and your word received. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We hear today from Paul again as we continue through the letter to the Ephesians. And as we remember all that Paul has said before in the letter, he says to us in the passage today that he urges us to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that life look like? And this is one of those verses I think that people can immediately try to take and twist into some statement about how um, you better be good for goodness sake because Jesus is watching. You know, somehow after Jesus spends all this time talking to us about grace or after Paul spends all this time talking about what Jesus has done, we hear a verse like this and then we think, all right, now it's up to you and you better do everything in your life every minute of every single day to shape up. And it's like, well, we just missed the whole point. If, if, if Jesus goes on about the grace that he bestows upon us, and Paul's been talking about the gift of grace, the work that Jesus has done, then thankfully... Paul goes on to talk about what that life looks like in the next sentence. So any kind of works righteousness thing that's starting to creep in or if we start to think, well, it's all about our behavior. We have to see, well, what's Paul say is the life, living a life worthy of the calling? Because he gives us the answer. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That is the definition of what Paul is saying to the church. It means to live a life worthy of the calling. It doesn't mean we pick our favorite um, moral stance that we want to fight with somebody about and say, well, the Bible says right here to live a life worthy of the calling. So stop doing the thing that I think you should stop doing. But Paul specifically says, this is what the worthy life looks like. And it means that we're humble, that we're gentle, that we're patient, that we bear with one another in love. It doesn't say that we get our way with a sledgehammer. You know, which, which is the sad way that Christians treat one another sometimes. That we're so eager to defend God in every doctrine and every moral high ground that we squash people in the process of doing so. In defense of God, we crush them. But that doesn't seem to line up with what Paul says, that how the church is supposed to go about this. Bear with one another in love. That doesn't seem like it means destroy one another because you are right and they are wrong. That doesn't seem to be what Paul is saying. I don't know how we take that from this. 
Because Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the body. That that's Paul's goal, is to stop letting the things that don't matter, that are dividing the church, stop letting them divide you. That's what Paul says throughout his, his letters, right? You're getting worried about this. You're worried about that. You're worried about the law. You're worried about this. These things are not what unite you. So stop making them the central thing. Be concerned about the unity of the church through the bond of peace that comes from God. Because he reminds us there's one body, there's one spirit, there is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know, and I think each, each year there are more and more new denominations of Christianity which all come from the fact that we fight with one another and that we're certain the answers that we have are the right ones and the others do not. And so then there's a separation and in the midst of that somehow, and there may be real things that we see differently, and, and that's okay. And there may be real differences in a way a community of believers feels is the most beneficial way of worshiping and what the service looks like. And I think, and that's okay. Those things in themselves are not bad. As long as in the midst of that we remember that part of what forms those communities are some of our personal preferences. And that in the midst of that we remember that there is one body, that there is one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Which means Paul would say that, that means that we're no better because we choose to worship this way than the Baptist church that chooses to worship a different way. There's only one Lord who is worshipped. There is one faith, there is one baptism into his death and resurrection. And I think it's okay that churches have different distinctions about them in worship or their understanding of scripture and doctrine. I, I think that's okay until we think, well, we're the superior ones who have got it. And they're the other heathens who are clearly on the quick train to hell. You know, when we get to that place, I think we've crossed the line. We've forgotten that there's one faith that unites us. And we may do things differently, but do we see one another as brothers and sisters who are legitimate Christians, worshiping and loving the same God, who go about it a little differently? And if we do, then we want each other to thrive, and we want the gospel to be preached. If we don't, then we're like waiting for their demise and happy when it happens. Those are two very different ways of living. And Paul calls us to live in that place of peace, recognizing there is one faith. Then Paul reminds us that in this church, he, Jesus has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And then often uh, we can hear this and we think, whew, that's not me, I'm off the hook. But what does Paul say is the reason 
that there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He doesn't say God, God gave those so that they might do all of the work for the kingdom. That's not what it says. It says these orders are given. Apostles and pastors and teachers. These exist for the purpose of to prepare God's people for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That all of these orders exist to equip you to do the work of ministry in spreading the gospel and bringing the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done to your family and friends and your workplaces and communities for you to do the work of ministry. And in fact, if you look at the catechism in the prayer book, there's a question that says, who are the ministers of the church? Anyone want to take a guess who comes first? You got it. Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. Even when the church puts the catechism together, it presumes that the bulk of the work of ministry of the church is done by the people. You are the chief ministers. And pastors and teachers are called to equip you for the skills necessary to go and to build the church. That's how God set it up. And if we think that, well, we'll just task this all to the professionals who we pay to do this on our behalf, look at the difference in the impact if all of you are equipped for the work of ministry, how many times more ministry happens than if you just presume you're going to send me? Because there's only one of me, there's more of you. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to do everything. In fact, this example tells us that God puts His body together with different gills, skills to go out. And so each of us has different things to do, but we're all supposed to be part of it. We're all supposed to be equipped. And that's part of what we gather together as a body to do, is to be equipped for your work to go out. And when you do that successfully, then the church thrives and grows. Because you reach more places than I go alone. And you should be equipped. And if you're not sure exactly what your, your gift or your skill or your ministry is, then bring that in prayer. And then you should be coming here to get equipped to do your ministry. To be part of the building up of the body. Then Paul says, he calls us no longer to be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And people can go in all sorts of places with this and usually it's one of those verses that gets brought up when you want to say that somebody's wrong for thinking something different than you and you say, well, oh, you're just being blown around by the latest doctrine. I knew it. You know, but I think as Paul says this, he has to mean, don't forget the teaching that I've just written in this letter. I mean, you have to take it in the context of the book that it's given to us in. He wrote this in a letter, and part of what he's saying, remember these things that I just said about who Jesus is and how there's one faith and we're all united and the, the Jew is not better than the Gentile and the grace is available for all? You know all that stuff? 
Don't let somebody come in and try to teach you it's by your works. Don't let somebody come in and say that there should be this division. Don't let somebody come... Those are the things he's talking about when he says don't let any... Don't be tossed around by the wind of doctrine. Don't let your faith be shaken. Stand on what Paul has just said. That's what he's saying to the church. Instead, he says, speak the truth in love. And this is another verse that Christians like to get themselves in trouble with. And we say, oh, I'm going to speak the truth in love, which just means I'm going to give them a piece of my mind and tell them exactly what I think, but I'm going to say, but bless Jesus at the end, or I love you, but I'm going to say really mean things. That's usually how, how it tends to function. But I think when Paul says, speak the truth in love, I think we have to acknowledge the truth that he has just laid out in this letter. The truth is love. Because Jesus is love. Right? Because what Paul has just said is God has come and given himself for you and the grace is available to all who would receive it and there's no division and we're all united in him and there's one faith. That's a message of love. Which is the truth. So speaking the truth in love doesn't mean we just say that thing to the person we've always really wanted to say and say, but I'm saying this in love. You know, it means the message of the gospel is a message of love. God loves you and look what Jesus has done. And this is the truth of who He is and who you are because of Him. So if that's the message we're speaking, then we have to do that in love because the very message is love. Paul has made that clear. And then, he hopes that as we do this, what does he say is the goal? In all things, grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. But that's the end goal for Paul. That we are transformed, that we grow into the image of Christ. That we're transformed into his image and likeness. And that we go forth into the world bearing that truth of love that we give thanks to God for what He has done for us, and that in response to that, we bear that love to one another. We live in that place of unity and peace. That's the end goal for Paul. And so let us leave here today giving thanks to God again for the reality of who He is, what He's done for us, and the fact that the truth that He's taught us, that He's revealed to us, is a message of love. And may we live in that place of love and peace. And may we draw others to come to know that peace through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. For the new life and peace available in him. May your Holy Spirit continue to lead us and guide us that we might be transformed into your image and likeness, to bear your love, mercy, and grace to one another and to the whole world, that everyone might come to know you, that you may be loved, worshipped, and adored. And Jesus, we ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.